0: everyone and welcome to the naturopathic times podcast if you are new to our show this is an interview podcast that bridges the gap between naturopathic philosophy and common day practice i am your host katerina meister and i'm your co-host stephanie akopatiega and as a final reminder don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share with someone you know on to the show Today's naturopathic doctor specializes in a multitude of chronic complex diseases like mast cell activation syndrome, mold illness, Lyme and its co-infections, PANS and PANDAS, and more. Please welcome our guest, Dr. Talia Hale. Hi
1: everyone, thank you so much for having me today. It's been so fun talking to you guys, just getting to know you guys. I'm excited to see where this conversation continues to go.
2: Thanks for joining.
0: Thank you for joining and coming today. as always, we love being able to feature our naturopathic doctors in our profession, and you are someone that we were really looking forward to. Um, and we know that you specialize in Lyme disease and its co-infections, mm-hmm. um, and we would like to get into that. But before that, we would like to hear a little bit about you know, how you even got into this profession in the first place.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I always
1: really loved medicine. My mom... Um, does research and works for pharmaceutical companies, so I was surrounded by it as a, at a young age and I think on the side, my family's from Iran, so we're rooted in a lot of naturopathic medicine already it's very natural to our culture, so I got to see both sides at a very young age and see the benefits of both. Um, but what I'd say was a big pivotal moment for me was my father's diagnosis with cancer when I was in high school and I was very awestricken even at a young age to see that when we first went to see the doctors, he was having fevers that were lasting a week at a time and relapsing frequently. And oftentimes he was just given Tylenol and told to go home and rest. And it wasn't until nine months later that they dug deeper. And that was with my mom pushing very hard that they diagnosed him with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm. And that treatment process was a struggle for him. And at the end, he did end up passing away a few days before my senior year. But the biggest piece for me was the last few weeks, the way that the doctors would just work with us. I just didn't feel like there was that compassion component in in our experience. And that was really hard to experience. So at that moment, I thought, I'm done with medicine. I don't want to be a doctor. Like, this is not for me. And it wasn't until I went into college and started having a couple of health issues of my own related to digestion and hormones that um, I kept digging beyond conventional medicine. And, and luckily, thanks to my brother, actually found naturopathic medicine. Wow after my second visit with that doctor, I was like, what do you do and how do I do it? And he actually told me about Bastia originally, which there was no San Diego Bastier at the time. Um, and so I just did my research and, you know, I was very laser focused into becoming a naturopathic doctor. And yeah, I loved it. I loved all of it. So it was a very exciting process in the end.
0: Yeah, you really have to be, um, you know, kind of a someone that doesn't give up very passionate about finding like the root cause, like your mom. Mm -hmm. And seems like that is just like a really good um, trend in your family that you don't, you don't settle for, you know, no answer basically.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. I was talking with a patient yesterday who's 22 years old and I just told her, you know, naturopathic medicine, puts the reins in your hands we provide you the tools we give you the ideas but your health is in your own hands so instead Mm -hmm. of you know relinquishing your power to your doctor you should be working as a team and Mm -hmm. you know the power really gets put back into your hands because you're the one doing it so
0: your health Mm -hmm. really
1: is in your own hands instead of the hands of somebody else and i think that's Mm -hmm. tremendously empowering
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, patient empowerment is huge. I love that, too. Mm -hmm. I think about that often (laughs) when I'm also in in the clinical setting, yeah, as a student.
0: I know, I I feel like I've been actually told as a clinician that I need to give the reins back to the patient, since (laughs) I kind of take that over and feel that burden. But it is, it's their responsibility to make these changes, like they're not going to be easy. and. They have to be willing and passionate about their own health to be able to make those changes, yes. which is very hard sometimes, especially when you're doing nutritional changes or something that is a little bit harder to do.
1: And so mm-hmm. much of it is also just meeting them where they are, um, because you may have a really grand vision for them, but it's really important to understand that you know, they may not be at your grand vision yet. Mm-hmm. Ads, you really have to, you know, figure out where they are. And I always talk to my patients about being like comfortably uncomfortable with things. So it's, you're making a change so that you're seeing a change in moving forward, but you're not making such a change that it's making you crawl out of your skin because right. if you're crawling out of your skin, thinking about it or doing it, it's probably not going to have a lot of longevity for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what you really want to build is you really want to build a habit that moves with you throughout your life and it's not just something you're doing for a month and then you crash out and sometimes Mm -hmm. we have to crash out to figure out where our boundaries are but it's really important to listen to that and you know adjust accordingly just so you have that long-term perspective in mind as well
0: yeah like little little is little at a time is actually better than a lot at once so that you can really make it a lifestyle change and not just you know go hard one week and then not the next. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that you are from the Bay Area and you're currently practicing there still. Um, We're curious how the topic of Lyme became the center focus of your practice.
1: Yeah. So I was focusing primarily when I first started practicing on hormones and digestive conditions and autoimmune diseases. and as you practice, what's really interesting is that your patients kind of meet you where you are. And that's something doctors always told me when I was a student, they're like, you'll always get patients that are matched for you. Well, as your knowledge base grows, those patients also become more complicated when you kind of really hone in on what you're good at. And that started to happen around year seven for me. And I started to get more complicated patients. And I, i don't really stop. So, I like to dig deeper and figure out what's going on with people. And with those patients, I started to see more chronic infections, including Lyme, Bartonella, um, mold illness being um, catapulted on top. So, there's a lot of different dynamics going on. And, you know, interestingly enough, I was going through a really stressful period of my life as well. And I was testing all these patients for Lyme and just digging deeper. And I was honestly floored, tired. I was doing things I normally wouldn't do, like a gummy bear binge at three o'clock, because I was just so tired. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is like seriously wrong because it's so outside of like my normal lifestyle. And so I tested and I figured I was like, I probably have mono or something that's reactivating. Um, and I was seeing it in my patients. So I was like, I'm going to test myself. Well, I threw Lyme in to core just like, as a maybe you know I'm just gonna throw it in to cover all my bases and I was shocked to see that my test was like lit up like a Christmas tree
0: oh positive.
1: wow yeah so then oh it my became gosh. personal it wasn't just That's shocking you know, yeah it was super shocking and you know I think it was really eye-opening for me because, you know, maybe I had a little bit of joint pain and a little bit of this and a little bit of that and some hormone issues. And, you know, I never would have thought because I think when you envision a Lyme patient, you're envisioning someone who's like in a wheelchair, really sick or really debilitated. You don't really think about people actually being pretty functional because there is a spectrum of that condition as well. So, like I said, I started to see it in myself, which again makes it personal, which makes you dig in in a whole different way, um, as well as digging in for my patients as well. And so, you know, though I was dabbling in the condition for like a year or so, it's such a complex condition that I really didn't want to make these patients who are really struggling guinea pigs of my own experiment. So I kind of put it out into the universe and I was like, I want to learn, I want to learn again, but I don't want to go back to school. And it wasn't until another month where I was watching this webinar with this uh, well-known Lyme doctor named Dr. Raj Patel. He's a medical doctor. He was doing a webinar for a supplement company. And at the very end of his webinar, he had this slide and he said, I'm looking for a doctor to join my practice. And I, he's like naturopathic doctor, medical doctor, you know, he yeah. kind of had it all out there, but it was like so vague. And he didn't even say like where he was physically. And so like mm. I Googled his name and I looked him up. As like, oh my gosh, he's in Foster City in the Bay Area. That's and perfect. I was like, can't afford not to. So I put my resume in and then started meeting him. And we really clicked after a couple of months of connecting. And that's kind of really what got me heavy hit into Lyme. And it was a great way to do it because he has a really wonderful process of how he treats these patients. And I feel very fortunate to have absorbed his decades of training in order to help our patients with Lyme. So that's a really long drawn out story, but that's Mm -hmm. kind of the whole piece of it.
0: It's like your own healing journey is what I was going to say. And just um, Mm -hmm. getting Lyme disease yourself and then seeing it in your patients and then finding this, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's been an epic journey because I've been able to practice what I preach on most of the things that I ask people to do. I've had to do myself. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: so, and it's it's just a different experience. I don't think as a doctor, you have to experience everything to help your patients, but it has been a very eye-opening experience to at least get a glimpse of mm-hmm. what this condition is. And at the end of the day, I'm really fortunate to have noticed it, you know, in my pre- marriage pre kids years, because these are infections that we can actually pass on through generations. And I think a lot of our sick children, you know, oftentimes have moms that didn't know that they were sick with a virus or infection. And then we're seeing a lot more autoimmune and neurologic issues and food allergies in our in our kids as well. So I think that's kind of where the story is taking me to is, as I look at that next, next phase of my life, you know, Mm -hmm. how do I want to do it that's different? And it's, yeah, it's evolving. It's consistently evolving. Mm
2: -hmm. So there are three phases, right? In Lyme disease, but based on your story, it sounds like people can have Lyme disease and not know at all. So how, how does it even get to that point? When are people coming in to see you?
1: Well, oftentimes, you know, 70% of the
2: patients who
1: are diagnosed with Lyme disease never recall a tick bite. And I'm one of those people, I never remember a tick bite, but I spent a lot of time in my childhood in the mountains, hiking and like I worked on a farm. I mean, there's plenty of opportunities for exposure for where I lived, but I don't recall a tick bite at
0: all. Yeah, I was going to say that was kind of shocking for me to hear just because- I would think that if you got Lyme, then you would reckon like where you would remember the tick bite or you would see the red rash or yeah, that was interesting. Well, a nymph tick can be as
1: small as a tiny freckle or a sesame seed. So if that bit you and had an infection, the likelihood of you remembering it is really low. And unlike mosquito bites, You know, tick bites have natural antihistamines, they have natural analgesics in them, you don't even feel it, or itch at it, or, you know, it could really happen, you have no idea. Mm
0: -hmm. They can just hide that you got bit with like, like antihistamines, like anticoagulants in them, like I was surprised that they even secreted that after they like land on you Mm
2: -hmm.
0: to try to hide basically. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and a lot of times people say if you get a tick bite and you remove it within 24 hours like you're good to go, but that's actually not the case. There are other things like I know for viruses, those can be transmitted within minutes and some viruses can actually really emulate Lyme disease and look like Lyme. So you mm-hmm. kind of got to think about the tick like a dirty needle, you know, it's gone from a deer to a rat to a, another host and they're just kind of like picking up different infections. So on average, when you see a Lyme patient, they usually have on average of seven different infections. It's not just Lyme or viruses. They usually have a combination of different things. So when I think of Lyme, I think of it as the complex of those infections because it's very, very rare that I would see a patient who would just have one.
2: Hmm. And so for patients that do walk in, what are the red flags that you see where you're thinking, I need to test for Lyme? Yeah, that's a really good
1: question. I mean, I think it can go as simple as fatigue. Um, But usually when you're flagging these patients, they have symptoms in various organ systems. So it could be one big one is like migratory joint pain. So this hurts today, my hip hurts tomorrow, but there's been no injury. Another common one is like a lot of neck and shoulder tension is really common in Lyme patients like that stiff neck and shoulders and pain um, and then you can even go into digestion you know it causes neuropathy of the digestive tract, so you might have chronic constipation, you may have urinary symptoms, and this is a really hard one for people to talk about, but you know frequency with urination or pain with urination um sexual intercourse might be more uncomfortable because of the nervous system of that area being affected. And that area of your body is one of the most innervated areas of your body. So that's actually sometimes a flag too. So when I see multi-systemic issues, sorry guys, GPS is here. Someone's here. <laughs> um, but when you see multi-systemic issues showing up in different areas of the body, that's definitely a clue. And Lyme can affect the heart. It can affect, you know, I don't think there's a single organ system. We don't see it go into.
0: Right. But when they first, so like, that's if they haven't been treated though, right? If they would get all those things, but if they were treated right away with like antibiotics, they might not get to that point or would they still get there? They sometimes still can because traditional medicine usually does one dose of
1: doxycycline. And um, Lyme is a very slow replicating bacteria, so it doesn't replicate very quickly. So it seeds in pretty nicely over time. So that single dose may not be sufficient in order to properly treat Lyme. And that's where there's varying belief systems Lyme is a very controversial cho- topic in terms mm-hmm. of treatment but you know traditionally people give a single dose of doxycycline but when you look at it from more of an alternative perspective or a more expanded perspective you know it's usually at least like 21 days to a month to treat a Lyme someone who just recently got bit by a tick and a lot of times I do see people who got treated but they weren't properly treated or wholly treated mm-hmm. so there is something left behind that slowly then seeds into these chronic uh, symptoms.
0: Yeah, because I know in the tick itself, the the bacteria goes dormant because it tries to survive. And then when you actually get bit, it reactivates, then it goes inside of like the body to make that the new host. So do you see it going dormant and then reactivating for some people who've already had it?
1: Yeah, I do. And I think that's when stress comes in. You know, like when my symptoms really kicked into high gear, I had a lot of stress in my life at that time. And so I think it becomes this perfect storm. I think a lot more people are walking around the planet with these infections. And you have to think about Lyme has been around since the ice age. You know, when we look at Atsi, the caveman, they did analysis on him and he had Borrelia. And he had spots around his joints where they showed that they did some sort of acupuncture or some sort of treatment on his joints, even at that time. So these infections have been here longer than we understand, but we're seeing uptick in the expression of them, I think, because of all the environmental toxins and the stress that we put ourselves under physically, mentally. Emotionally, all of it, and so a lot of times there's like this tipping point where it's like your body's immune system is good at keeping it in check and can handle it, but then something happens in your life where you kind of face plant, and then you start to see these symptoms really show up. And that's where it might seem dormant for a while because your immune system is doing something to deal, Um, but then when there's enough stress involved, that it may not be able to do that as effectively.
2: Wow. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't know that about the, um, the caveman. Yes. That's crazy. OTC. Actually.
1: see the caveman had Borrelia.
2: That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So again,
1: then it comes down to terrain versus the bug, you know, which is really common in the philosophy of naturopathic medicine. Like what do you fix? And, you know, a lot of treatment for Lyme is really like kill, 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 kill. Um, right but you still have to support the foundational pieces and that's where mold or mast cell or other things may come in because those things aren't properly addressed. You already have systemic inflammation and then you go into kill, which creates more toxins in the killing process. And then you get these people who just like crash out completely with treatment.
0: Right, so it's not just a linear, you have a bacteria that we need to kill. It is way more complex than that. And that's kind of where naturopathic medicine comes in with the stress factor, like you were mentioning, which is a huge factor if it can linger in the body. So there, Stephanie was saying there was three stages and so you would see them in their third stage or what would you even call that if it's chronically there for a long time and never been treated?
1: So if it's, then you're considering it chronic Lyme at that point. So it's chronic Lyme disease, whereas an acute would be, a known tick bite pretty recent, but like I said, within a few weeks, it can go into chronic Lyme. So I think I probably think of it more as like two stages, but I might be oversimplifying it, but it's really like when you catch, I think of a patient when I catch that first tick bite um, and treating them is different than when I have someone that's probably had it for a prolonged period of time.
0: Okay. Um, the so, the chronic, really yeah, so the chronic treatment would be more stress management and a kill protocol. Or what would that yes. look like? I think if you have an acute patient, you're really trying to get that infection
1: eradicated as soon as possible before it really seeds into the organ systems and other areas of the body and it starts to hide. Um, and when you have a chronic patient, you have kind of already have the infection. So it's more important to work on the foundational pieces to prime them because more than likely that infection has caused damage to you know, brain health. Joint health, collagen—you know—it's kind of harped on a lot of the pieces. So in that in that state, it's more important to focus on the foundational pieces before going into killing any infections.
2: Mm-hmm. And with treatment, do you have some sort? So I'm on the autoimmune shift, Mm -hmm. um, and we do see patients like this, Mm -hmm. and every, no matter what the patient is coming in for, really, a lot of our treatment somewhere in there is some sort of a gut healing protocol, Mm -hmm. um, since most of our immune tissue is located in the gut. Do you do that with some of your patients? Is that an area of focus that you have? Absolutely. I think... You know, our practice works on
1: Lyme and these infections very differently, but, you know, I'm sure in school you guys have learned about leaky gut, you know, Mm -hmm. and what was really interesting for me in working with Dr. Patel is that I got an insight from him that I never even thought of throughout naturopathic school, but one of the questions that he posed is that if you can become sensitive to foods, why can't you become sensitive to herbs, and treatments and medications and anything else that's going into the gut because we talk about gut permeability and when the gut permeability increases bigger particles coming through and so if that's happening you can get sensitive to your treatments just as much as you get sensitive to foods and so that's where gut healing and minimizing inflammation in the gut is really important because You'll get patients that do better long term. And oftentimes the treatment is working, it's just they're getting sensitive to the treatment. And the cardinal sign of that is the patient is like, oh, I started this and I was feeling great and it was really working. And then I went and I had pizza. And then ever since it's been terrible and it doesn't work anymore, the treatment still works. It's just that at this point, the digestive inflammation has overcome. And that treatment doesn't work as effectively, or the patient is now reacting to that treatment as well. And so mm-hmm. it's really difficult for our patients, and I know it gets really challenging, but that is where we're really militant about minimizing the gut inflammation. And when there is mold or other things in, in the mix, mycotoxins also cause gut inflammation as well. So it's really figuring out like what is the cause for that patient and bringing their gut inflammation down and then working with low doses of things and micro dosing so that their body doesn't get overwhelmed by the toxicity of the treatment as well. Cause that can make your gut leakier too. So yes, gut is a cardinal centerpiece to how we treat our patients effectively.
0: Mm-hmm. So just going over some of the um, different um, just like symptoms of Lyme. Mm -hmm. What are the most common that you see? Like fatigue or is it like the joint pain or Okay, so we'll start from the top. So um, chronic symptoms may be
1: headaches, brain fog, uh, difficulty concentrating or focusing. Um, Then we can see changes in vision. So we might see like blurry vision or things like that. Um, Then when you get into like the neck and shoulders and the musculature, like I said, that stiffness, that neck and shoulder tension, um, migratory joint pain where you're seeing things move around more often. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the co-infections of Lyme can cause like shortness of breath or something we call air hunger, which is like when you try and like really get a good breath in, which is like, (sighs) like the patient that's sighing. That's what air hunger is. I didn't know what that meant until someone put Mm. two and two
0: together. Right. Like Um, they're,
1: they're starving for air. They don't have enough. Exactly. And then you get the digestive symptoms. Um, so that could be, you know, constipation, diarrhea, bloating, um, you get cardiac symptoms that might be heart palpitations or arrhythmias in the heart are not, it's not uncommon with Lyme. Um, and then you get into the bladder. And like I said, you can have the bladder dysfunction or frequency with with urination or pain with urination, pain in general. And then um, looking at the joints, difficulty with collagen or skin elasticity sometimes changes in some of our patients depending on where it's attacking. Um, trying to think if there's anything else, but I mean, pain is a really big one overall. Is there
0: like a typical age group that you see at your practice or is it like it's any- everything. It's all about pediatrics of it. to okay, yeah, babies all the way to older adults. Because the thing
1: is, is a lot of times you call it aging, but sometimes it can be the degeneration associated with those infections. So your joints can get affected, and you can yeah. chalk it up to age and, like, oh, I'm getting older, and you know, my joints are bad, but it actually could be the degeneration of that bacteria, bacterial mm-hmm. process breaking down the collagen too.
0: So. that's crazy yeah because you'd probably just think oh they have arthritis or they have this genetic condition passed down or yeah
1: yeah. and sometimes that's the case yeah.
0: but there can be other pieces
1: too so you still have to connect the dots
2: right yeah. it's alarming because it sounds so broad like there's no symptom that's standing out to me where it's like okay that's Lyme but yeah but I think yeah. what you're getting is
1: that patient that makes you scratch your head
2: you know, the person right. who's
1: making you scratch your head, be like, what is wrong with you? You can't tolerate hot. You can't tolerate cold. You've got this going on. You've got that going on. When you get that fluster phase, mm. you it's a higher likelihood that you're dealing with something more complex than, you know, let's just fix your diet and work on your gut and then everything will, will get better. That will definitely help. But a lot of these patients are working on bigger pieces too.
0: Is there a set of labs that you order? or Yeah, there are. There are. So we usually
1: run inflammatory markers. Um, so we run C4A through National Jewish Hospital specifically because that gives us our best data. Um, we run TGF beta 1, which is an inflammatory marker um, that we use to both screen for mold and Lyme. Um, and then we use an MMP nine, um, and an MMP nine is an enzyme in the body that, you know, can break down in collagen in different areas. It's associated with mast cell and mold more often, but those are three mm-hmm. common inflammatory markers that we run. And then on top of that, we may run an Igenix, um, uh, Lyme panel. And we usually do like the full one where we're looking at the co-infections as well as Lyme. Um, and the different subspecies because that gives us the broader range. And like I said, if I see Babesia and Bartonella and Ehrlichia and some of the other co-infections, I have a much stronger suspicion that there's a Lyme component as well. Um, the, our testing has gotten a lot better. The funny thing is, is in naturopathic medical school, I said I would never treat Lyme. And that was a famous, it was, I did because I saw so many people on antibiotics, IV for years and the testing, like it's so clinical and Lyme is still so clinical, but I think the testing has gotten better, but you have to understand that the testing is testing your immune system's response to the infection, not the presence of the infection. Mm -hmm. So if someone's immune system is really strong and robust, kind of like I'd like to think mine was. It, it'll light up and it'll show up. But if someone's immune system isn't as strong and robust, it may not show up.
0: You so, mean like for the antibody testing, like you yeah. may have a high antibody count if your immune system is working properly? Okay. Yeah,
1: I think so. That's my personal experience because that's telling me that the immune system is trying. It's not like mm, yeah, laying on its back, just not doing anything. Like mm-hmm. it is actually trying. It's just then you're going in to assist that effort. But some people who have been really chronically ill, it may not show up because their immune system may not be in that place where it's robustly responding. So again, Lyme will always come down at this stage in what we know to clinical presentation. But I think our testing has gotten a lot better in terms Mm -hmm. of finding these infections and having something to track and pinpoint symptoms to a specific infection.
2: Mm -hmm. And hopefully it just keeps getting better because we were both reading that this is, it's spreading. Mm-hmm. It's becoming a lot more prevalent. And I was also reading something about um, just with like the earth warming, ticks are sort of migrating yep. everywhere. Yep, so. we're not, they're not
1: going through a kill cycle like they were before. You know, if it's warm enough, they don't die because of the cold. So we are getting a lot more cases and there's a lot more awareness. There's better testing. I think it's all kind of converging together, but yeah, there's a lot more risk coming in the sense of climate. Our climates are changing and that's affecting tick populations as well. Not to mention, you know, we're encroaching on nature, you know, we're moving into wooded areas. We're spreading and we're sprawling. So we don't have as much, you know, separation
0: from nature as we used to. Hmm. That's interesting. So when you're um, testing, um, are you seeing the antibody count go back to normal and their symptoms resolve over time? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. we've And see... then eventually they'll reach like a neutral stage or?
1: I mean, we see them go negative when we treat someone completely. So oh, okay. the IgMs go completely negative. We might have some IgGs show up, but the IgG does go negative, which technically... You know, some people argue it's completely gone. Other people would argue that your immune system is doing a better job of keeping in check. Once we get that negative and that full negative on those infections at that stage, we're monitoring them every three to six months because like I said, this infection is slowly replicating. So we do monitor them every three to six months to see if it's still staying down or if it's starting to creep back up again.
2: Hmm. So
0: That's interesting that 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 IgG goes negative too, because I thought that that was a that you would have that for life. I mean, sometimes
1: IgG is you know. high, and if the IgG stays high, we're not really too concerned about it because, again, okay. it does stay high, but there are situations where the IgG goes quiet too. So oh. IgM mm-hmm. is what we focus on more, but it just depends on the patient and what's showing up for them.
0: Yeah, I like seeing labs. Like I like seeing the um, actual numbers decrease. I think yes. that's something I yeah. like seeing in practice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, we
1: kind of treat each of the co-infections then we test once we feel like we've actually done a good job of treating those things. And then again, we just kind of watch and see what's going on. But it's really interesting to me. One of the interesting things to me about Lyme patients is sometimes actually in our practice, we don't treat Lyme first. You know, a lot of patients are really hooked on their Lyme diagnosis, but we may treat viruses, you know, the gut, parasites, the beast yeah, co-infections before we go to the Lyme. And it's really interesting because because there's so much data about Lyme and not so much about these other issues. I get the question of like, when are we going to treat the Lyme? Like, when are we going to mm-hmm. treat the Lyme? And, you know, sometimes that's not the biggest focus for them. And sometimes you kind of, I call it kind of like the warm up. Like we go after the viruses, we put them in check, then we work on these other infections. And, you know, oftentimes I'd say like 80% of the time, like, Lines like the last fight. It's like the last, one of the last things that we treat. Um, Mm -hmm. Because again, you have to listen to your symptoms and what's showing up and treat
0: what's the top layer and then keep kind of peeling back the layers. So would that be like the stress and then um, the gut and then what? The other co-infections that you mentioned, or oftentimes, yeah, it's not a hundred percent. If someone's like
1: glaring, like their Borrelia is like seems symptomatically the most symptomatic, we will go there first. But a lot of times, like we warm it up with the other pieces, and then that way we go after the Lyme later, and um, that oftentimes works actually really well is to do that process. But I know a lot of patients get really hooked on the Lyme component because it's. It's what they read about the most or what they get Mm -hmm. exposed to the most, but sometimes that's not really the goal. And what I've seen is that if we're treating people well, you know, they come back every one to two months saying, I'm better than I was like three months ago. I'm better than I was three months ago. And that's consistent. And when I was shadowing line doctors, it was really disheartening and really fatiguing because I just see people constantly battling and constantly in pain. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. until I shadowed Dr. Patel where I started to see people actually consistently saying like, I feel better than I was two months ago. I feel better than, and it was really, really eye-opening to see people actually feeling better. Mm, And it really is a journey. It takes several years. Like it's not an easy fix, but if you can feel better, there's light in that, that you can actually heal.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Are the co-infections like mono or other viruses or are they like mold or... So um, mold is usually just in, in our perspective, more
1: of an inflammatory trigger, you know, so again, that's something that we deal with first, if that's really bothering the patient, because they're constantly getting inflamed and their immune system is constantly taxed. It's really hard to treat infections near impossible. So that's something that we work with first, then we deal with mast cell, if there is a mast cell component, which is a reaction to histamine or an overwhelming histamine production in the body and in the gut. And then we go into viruses oftentimes, because at the end of the day, by the time you're 30, you've been exposed to the Epstein-Barr virus. Most of us have been exposed. But a healthy immune system is able to keep the viruses that it, it's been exposed to in check. Mm-hmm. Um, an unhealthy immune system, which when you have a lot of other infections, struggles. It's kind of like the to-do list. It's like autoimmune disease. You know, if the list gets too long, you can't do all of it perfectly. Mm -hmm. And so um, when that list of infections gets long, oftentimes viruses go unchecked and then cause like fever, chills, fatigue, um, swollen glands, you know, things like that. And so that's why viruses are a really important cornerstone of the treatment, because, you know, if we can bring that load down, then, you know, we can treat the other things with greater ease. Mm-hmm. And then we go into other co-infections and treating Lyme and whatever else we can find along the way um, Some, you know, walking pneumonia sometimes shows up in a lot of our patients and they don't even know that they have it, you know, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that we kind of have to sleuth out to make sure that we're covering all of our bases.
2: hmm It's interesting, too, about just going back to um, mono and EBV, because you're right, so many of us have been exposed to it. And it's really prevalent among, you know, college students and high schoolers. And you don't really think about it at that age, like that, if your immune system isn't robust enough to handle this it can be reactivated yeah it's just an interesting way to look at yeah and most
1: people when they were teens probably got exposed to it and they didn't have like the sore throat and the swollen glands and the fatigue you know most of us you know we get exposed to these things and sometimes we don't even realize we were Mm -hmm. so um you know
0: which is why we don't like test for this and like the any like any person because you could be having, like you said, a good response. Yes. Your immune system could keep it in check. Mm-hmm. But it yeah. is interesting as like a student, you always wonder like, okay, I'm curious if I have those antibodies or not. Well, yeah.
1: Right. When you study, in school, <laughs> you learn about oh all these things. You're like, I have that, I have that, I have that. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's definitely easy to become a hypercontract in medical school. And also I think with naturopathic medical school too, it's not like medical conventional medicine where you're like I'm just going to try ambien for a week and see how it feels you know you're like I'm going to try an anti-inflammatory diet I'm going to try herbs you know like it's right. a little easier to like dibble dabble and get like an experience whereas it's a little harder of like I'm going to take prednisone and see what happens you know
2: <laughs> yeah it's, that it's is kind true. of a
1: different experience in medical school completely mm-hmm.
2: yeah it's a whole lifestyle change, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I go through. yeah. So you did mention mast cell activation. Um, and I hear that a lot. I hear about mast cell activation and Lyme together. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what this is? It's also a very complex condition. It is really complex. So, um, mass cell was
0: actually
1: a big part of my journey, um, mm-hmm. the first year and a half of treatment. And, um, if I didn't deal with that, I think it would have been a lot harder. So I think it's really important. Um, so let's go down to the bare bones of it. So basically you have immune cells and mass cells show up in the areas of your body where you interact with the outside world. So you have a high concentration on the skin, high concentration in your lungs, and a high concentration in your digestive tract. Because should something bad come in that, you're, that you are reacting to, that's where that histamine reaction shows up. So that's where we commonly see mast cells. Now, with mast cell activation syndrome, we have an overactive stimulation of these cells, And there's, we're learning about a million triggers that could potentially make these cells go haywire. But I think oftentimes we do have these underlying issues when that happens. And I know a lot of people compare mast cell to autoimmune disease, and I think there are a lot of similarities there. Um, But basically, you know, mast cells are this overreaction of histamine. And the way that that can present is headaches, migraines, anxiety Mm -hmm. is a really big one, Mm -hmm. Um, You can get, obviously, digestive issues, abdominal bloating. You can get um, diarrhea oftentimes. When we look at the skin, people might just itch their skin. There may be like no rash there, but they're just like itchy all over. That's the histamine reaction. Sometimes there is a rash. Sometimes when you're doing a physical exam, you'll like touch their body or scrape and a red mark shows up in its place. That's a histamine reaction. They may have joint pain. Um, they may have bladder symptoms. So interstitial cystitis, which is a bladder condition, I oftentimes Hmm. see it really closely linked with mast cell. Um, Because you get like this frequency of urination, you have to pee all the time, you know, you've got pain with urination, those things um, are really big with interstitial cystitis. And oftentimes there is a mast cell component too. So those are some of the big ones. Some people get joint pain, fatigue, when we're looking at the endocrine system, we get lightheadedness with standing up. So like when you stand up and you know feel like you want to pass out, um, that can be mast cell actually. POTS is really interrelated. That's that postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. We see that connective mast cell. Um, and then blood sugar dysregulation. So, so many times, even as mm. naturopathic doctors, like adrenals, adrenals, and it is adrenals. But histamine causes this blood sugar dysregulation where... If you don't eat, you're going to like pass out or kill somebody. Um, So, so those are really important connections. And like I said, similar to Lyme, you know, mast cell causes a whole slew of these issues. And what's really cool is when we treat these patients for their mast cell first, they can see like this layer fall off. Wow. And when you see this layer that again, gives them motivation of like, okay, like I can feel better without even like touching these infections. And I'll be honest, the diet is kind of where we start. We don't actually start anyone on stabilizers. We start with a very strict low histamine diet. Um, and, and that's like low histamine. That's um, like avoiding high histamine foods. Some examples are like tomatoes and strawberries and citrus are very high histamine foods. Um, chocolate's high in histamine. Bummer, I know. And <laughs> um And then no leftovers, because the thing is, is bacteria will break down protein and food, especially meat, naturally as it sits out. And then that creates histamine in the food. So when you get a patient like, yeah, I can't eat leftovers, everything has to be fresh, otherwise my stomach gets messed up. Um, that's a sign. And then some patients are like, I don't know what's bothering me. I eat the same thing every day. And then I ask them was like, Do you cook ahead and then just eat stuff later? And they're like, Yeah, like after a few days, like it bothers me. And I'm like, Okay, like that's a leftover issue. So not um, a meal prep diet.
2: You no, you can't be- still
1: meal prep after you. Can? Okay. You can. It's just you buy everything really fresh and you have your meat delivered that's what happened downstairs. It's like my meat just got delivered. And it's always frozen. And mm-hmm. so you just prep everything ahead and then you, um, put them in individual containers and then just freeze them. And actually it was the muscle diet was kind of a godsend for me at the time because I was a healing, b trying to learn a whole new system of healing people. And I didn't have time to like worry about cooking. So the batch cooking actually made my life a lot easier because I just reach into the freezer and be like, I'm going to have chicken with broccoli. I'm going to have cauliflower with fish. I'm going to have this with this. And then the thought of food kind of completely left my my brain. It was just kind of pick something and move forward. Mm-hmm. So it actually, you can still meal prep. You just need to meal prep and freeze and then pull things out of the freezer and make sure you're not eating out of the fridge. So it's not easy. I'll never tell anyone it's easy, but it made such a world of a difference that it was worth it to me at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm glad there's a way around it. Yeah. I know. That's mm-hmm. so shocking. All of, I didn't even know this existed actually before um, we looked into like having you on and everything. Yeah. Sorry, um, guys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like once you know, like yeah. you can't unknow it and you're like, oh know. man.
0: Rồi. <laughs> I know I'm like yeah. I'm itchy right now.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I was scratching my arm looking for a red mark. <laughs> oh, gosh. And so all of this ties in with molds, too, right? Yes. That, I mean, that's a huge problem. Yeah. Mold can trigger mast cells.
1: Electromagnetic frequency can trigger mast cells. Infections can trigger mm. mast cells. Poor methylation um, and detox can trigger mast cells. So 5G, like-, like electro. Okay. I mean, I think EMF in general, 5G aside, EMF? even before okay. 5G, EMF has been bothering people. And it does stimulate- it's a big topic right now. Yeah. Huge. And we do see it being a big concern for a lot of our chronically ill patients because <laughs> it slows down your body's ability to detox. So if you're a toxic person, both what you create on the inside as well as what you get on the outside, um, that slowed detox can really make a big difference.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So- That's where we typically see the EMF being a real problem for people. And, you know, you see a lot of that heavy metal component coming in, which makes people more conductive. And so that's like a whole other topic. Yeah. It's easy to get into, but they're all interconnected. And with mast cell, you do see an EMF component also potentially triggering the mast cell as well as parasites. Parasites are a common mast cell trigger too. Wow.
0: So it's just a diet. That's like the main treatment. And then we start. Um, Okay. The thing is, it's kind of like being in the shower, and having the
1: water running and then asking someone to hand you a towel to get dry. You know, until you turn off the nozzle and turn off the water, the towel doesn't work. So you can add in quercetin and, you know, holy basil and, you know, chromalin and, you know, claritin and all those things to calm down the mast cells. But If you're not calming down what your body is already creating within itself, you're kind of fighting an uphill battle. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's where we use the MMP9 lab result. And that's been really helpful for us because that's been kind of a sign for us that mast cell is there, that inflammatory marker. And a lot of times what we'll do is we'll do that marker, have them go on a strict low histamine diet for three to four weeks, and then we'll retest that marker after, and then we can see if the inflammation is actually shifting with the diet. And oftentimes, what we found in our in office research was that patients that did that saw a more dramatic decrease, and then when we added in the stabilizers, that was kind of like holding it down even further, so we weren't fighting their their organic histamine production with medications or supplements, we were just bringing it down naturally and then using that as an aid to keep it down. Mm-hmm. And that has worked a lot better than adding in the stabilizers before you adjust the diet. And it's hard, but it works better that way. And the Right.
0: Then you don't have like continued triggers and continued inflammation or like, yeah. like you just said, like the towel isn't going to work. Exactly. And then you're less likely to get sensitized to your supplements where they stop
1: working. And again, like, that's what you'll see consistently is you'll be like, the patient feels better when they started something. And then after a few weeks or days, they're like, I, it doesn't work. And it worked great the first few days or the first few weeks. And then now it doesn't work at all. And as a clinician, you're banging your head against the wall being like, what is wrong? Like what Mm -hmm. happened? And I know I was doing that before. Like, how did that work for a few days and then just stop working? And that's oftentimes why, is the gut inflammation overwhelms it.
0: Well, did, wait, did we talk about how you get this, like, or how this happens? I don't even, I can't remember if you told us. Yeah. How does this mass, happen? With mast cell? Yeah. So kind
1: of like I said, it can live in the camp of that autoimmune function where immune system just starts to over, over Overdrive, react. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just
0: from like the diet or like stress or like everything like you were saying. Probably there was underlying things beforehand, but
1: then yes, diet continues to stress it. And then lifestyle can continue to stress it. Infections stress it. So it just depends. But yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to say when it started or where it starts in someone. But usually, like I said, it's that dysregulated immune system. And oftentimes when we look at that, there's usually infections or other things that may cause that dysregulation.
2: Hmm. wow i know i'm still like wrapping my mind around all of this stuff it's so complicated it can seem that way i
1: think it can definitely seem that way and Mm -hmm. like i said that's why i'm so thankful for dr patel and him teaching me the things that he's taught me because he's kind of created a system and by no means is a system easy but when people do commit to it it does work um and i've seen it happen countless times and it drives down treatment time, treatment headaches, you know, cost of supplements. Because again, when we're microdosing, you know, that one supplement goes a long way rather than like, I spend a thousand dollars a month on supplements, you know, like those yeah. things actually go a really long way, but it does require a lot of discipline and a lot of determination to do those foundational pieces
0: that mm-hmm. help you
1: to continue to get well.
0: So instead of like going with like the traditional therapeutic dose, mm-hmm. you're doing less than that and then doing it for a longer period of time with the lifestyle. And then you're going to up that dose to the therapeutic dose when they're finally like, okay, Don't you'll never. do oh, okay. To. I mean, usually we're working with a quarter to half of what most doctors
1: hmm. are prescribing and that's their max dose. Wow. You know, like that's all they need because again, like, it's kind of like a domino effect. If you can get the first dominoes, the rest of them kind of show up and I'm I'm making this theoretical, but my wonder is is does that work because it's actually stimulating the immune system to do what it needs to do because when you're helping the terrain and you're helping that, then the immune system's stronger and it can actually function properly. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering if when we do it this way and we bring down that core inflammation and that external inflammation, does that kind of just nudge the immune system to start actually doing what it was inherently trying to do? You're kind of mm-hmm. just getting out of its way and using a couple herbs to be like, go, you know? And right. so I think they work together in that process.
2: Yeah, I love that perspective. I actually haven't heard it spoken about this way before. So, yeah. Um, do you, I know we talked a lot about treatments and stuff, but do you have any general wellness tips for people that may be listening um, that are more geared towards strengthening your immune system? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not going to sound like rocket
1: science. It's going to be a lot of the things that we've already started talking about, but I think it's like, I think you kind of have to treat your body like it's a baby and your baby likes to know when it's going to poop, when it's going to sleep, when it's going to eat. So when there's consistency, that's when your body can actually rely on you versus Mm. if you skip meals and your body's like, when are we going to eat? Like what, what's happening? Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of always in fight or flight mode because it doesn't know what's coming at it. So I think, you know, it sounds super simple and it sounds like a little too simple, but I think those things are really important. And, you know, those things do give you foundational wellness for the rest of it to all work better
0: hmm.
1: And I think that's oftentimes what happens when people fall into chronic illness, myself included was, you know, I wasn't really honoring those boundaries and those things that my body needed, I was pushing it to the limit.
2: And yeah. I
1: think that's when your body stops you in your tracks and slows you down, whether you're going to slow yourself down, or it slows you down, it'll make you pay attention to what you need to pay attention to. And mm-hmm. it'll do it in a really abrupt way. And I think a lot of patients struggling with chronic illness, you know, I think that is a part of the journey is why is your body slowing you down? Like, what is it trying to get you to pay attention to that you might be trying to like cruise by and avoid or, you know, not deal with, you know, I think that's been a spiritual part of my journey has really been slowing down to figure out like, what was I trying to just like patch up and not,
0: not deal with? Yeah. Yeah. I think that not dealing with peace is key. Mm -hmm. It's like. We don't want to do self-care because we don't have the time. And it's like, we need to make the time. Like mm-hmm. we need to do these things for ourselves. We do it for everyone else. We try to like, we're caretakers of everyone else, but we don't do that for ourselves. And it's like, that's like the number one problem you have to fix right there is start looking at yourself and, you know, just take care of yourself. Like, yeah. Put your own mask on things. first. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. especially mm-hmm. since we're in the pandemic times, of course. Um, I guess I meant more of the, like the plain mask, you know, like. When yeah. like yeah, <laughs> but. But oh, yeah, <laughs> that's true, too. Like put on your own oxygen mask yeah. before you because yeah. you need to do that before you can help out someone else. And that's
1: been actually something really interesting is, like I said, you know, some of these infections do get passed in utero. And, you know, sometimes moms figure it out the hard way when their kids are sick and they're figuring that out in hindsight, Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, I was, I've been working with a mom for several years and, you know, we just recently started working with her kids and before she's like, should I get my kids tested? Should I get my kids tested? I was like, you know, take care of yourself first. Cause I was like, it's such a big process and you're going to be the one really calling the shots for these kids and doing things that I'm like, you need to feel better. And it was a couple Mm of weeks ago that she told me, she's like, I'm so happy you told me to do that because she's like, I don't think I could have done this like two years ago you know, so I think it's just a matter, and sometimes the kids need to be treated first. I mean, it's different for, you know, each family, but, you know, I think it's just really looking at the big picture and what needs to happen um, Mm -hmm. for the wellness of the whole family.
0: Yeah, we are curious. Um, What is next for you? What is next for me? So Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually
1: super excited about it. I've been kind of taking time to step back and see what it is. But kind of like what I alluded to, you know, my husband and I would like to start a family, you know, in the next like year or so. And, you know, my wellness process has been a big piece of that, but, you know, it's also been really hard for me the last several years. One thing I didn't expect was that I was me to be working with so many children affected by autism, pans, pandas, mm-hmm. which are autoimmune neurologic issues And it breaks my heart to see these kids struggling the way that they struggle. And now having that perspective that these infections can be passed in utero and these things can happen, um, I really want to create a program. I'm in the works of creating a program where I can educate people about the different depths of these things. And not everyone's going to need it. It's going to go through like the basic things that I think everyone should do and then just add a little insight of like, okay, if you are tired and achy and, you know, all of this stuff going in, you know, maybe you should look at this piece before getting pregnant, you know? Mm -hmm. Because I think, again, if we're going to talk about preventative medicine, you know, if we're talking about kids, we have to get to the parents, you know, and the Mm. parents before the kids are born. And I think that really is what true preventative medicine will be, is how do we minimize our toxins that we're passing down to our generations and all of that. So, That's kind of the next step of what I'm trying to, you know, work on and create and build. So I'm excited about it. And hopefully it provides insight for people to take better care of themselves, look at their Mm -hmm. relationships with their partners, looking at their relationships with themselves. So I'm planning on going into a lot of different areas, including like the spirituality component, the connection component, um, all the pieces that I've just been like geeking out over and really enjoying. So. (laughs)
0: Yeah, honestly, that's so interesting to me. And we're just so thankful that you got to be on our podcast. We're um, so happy to share your story. Um, for people who are listening, you can find Dr. Talia online at www.drtalia.com. And that is or on Instagram at Dr. Talia.
2: And before we close the show, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to stay updated on our newest episodes. Comment, rate, review, and most of all, share with someone you know.
0: All right. Thank you, Dr. Halia. Have a great day. Thank you guys so much you for having too. me.
1: Honestly, like this is such a beautiful experience. And I've actually shared some stories on here that I haven't shared at all yet. Oh, wow.
2: Yeah. Wow. And, I, so happy. and I was hoping
1: to, but thanks for creating such a beautiful environment to let those things yeah. come out. I really do appreciate it. It's a gift to me too. So Aww, thank you. That's so I'm sweet glad. of you.
0: I, yeah, I'm, I'm so happy. So much. I learned a lot. Like yeah. I'm mind blown right now. Yeah.